Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Welcome to the CollectingCars.com podcast with Chris Harris and Edward Lovett. Hello and welcome to another Collecting Cars podcast. I'm here at Silverstone, so you might hear some um, some whooshing in the background, RMA Track Day. I'm here with Edward Lovett, that's at Edward Lovett on Instagram and on Twitter. And here today, our guest is Chris Goodwin, who is at Chris Goodwin Drive on Instagram. Doesn't have a Twitter account because he's not that modern. Um, now, or old. old. Uh, well, exactly. Uh, now, Chris is a is a. I, I count him now as a friend. We weren't always that pally at the outset, um, and he's also my teammate. And has been for the last two or three years in Blancpain uh, GT Endurance Series. Um, but you might know him better as basically the bloke that defined the way that all modern McLaren road cars drove, which makes him one of the more talented people I've met, certainly. So um, that's me over being nice about you, Mr. Goodwin. Thank you for coming along. I'm feeling very uncomfortable with that sort of behaviour. <laughs> so um, anyone that listens to this is probably into the road car side and knows your name associated with everything from 650S to the P1 hypercar. But let's rewind um, because... You were and still are a racing driver. So where did it start for you, racing cars? When was the first time you realised you wanted to race a car? Um, well, first of all, I'm not a racing driver. I just race cars occasionally. It's my fun. Uh, it keeps me alive. Uh, I'm a professional test driver, and I was a professional test driver for McLaren for 20 years. Uh, but rewinding back, yeah. So um, I grew up, and my dad was a doctor. Dr. Tony Goodwin, he was quite a well-known racer back in the 60s and 70s. And I grew up going to race tracks instead of summer holidays. You know, we, we went to Spain on a summer holiday. Oh, actually, we're in Barcelona in Monjuic Park watching Dad in a two-litre <laughs> sports car race. And the same story, yeah, you know. So, yeah, we do laugh about it now. Um, 
but not not so great back then but eventually mud sticks doesn't it so being a toddler being a young kid it was really boring obviously um but then eventually you know something sparks you know and i fell in love with the, the just the the smell the sound of, of of race cars i just used to love looking at an empty bit of racetrack looking at a curb or a banked corner or something like that it's just a very odd thing and then finally um we used we i grew up 10 minutes from Brands Hatch and ironically I live back more or less there now and um, as a school kid uh, I was helped to get a job at Brands Hatch at the racing school and in fact I did every job under the sun at Brands Hatch the only job I didn't do was cut the grass so I, I mechanicked I helped at the racing school I ended up instructing there before I'd even raced a car did you learn how to say the word Kentigan after a couple of beers without offending people no, you had to offend people when you were in there. It was de rigueur. I, yeah, so I grew up in the Kentigan and the bar that was there before that. Um, so I just grew up around it, really. Um, and, um, yeah, just fell in love with it. I drove a race car when I was 14. I drove a pretty daggy old Formula Ford school car there and just fell in love with the whole thing, really, and um, drove a Sunbeam Tolbert saloon car with an instructor around there terrify the life out of him i'm sure totally out of control and just worm my way into it uh, from there on every school holidays i was working there um and that that was my life around that circuit and the people around it for quite a few years while i was supposed to be studying and going to school so first competitive race well how do you how, how do you define that um <laughs> My first race, I don't know that I was very competitive in it. Um, actually, my first uh, race was here at, Bra at uh, Silverstone Club Circuit, three corners, the old circuit, uh, in a 1950s Turner sports car, and it was the 750 Motor Club. I mean, I, my my career started in the in the you know most basic you know grassroots way. Um, and I did that as a road sports car, and I, I that was the gift that my dad gave me was a um, 300 quid's worth of a wreck of a Turner that he bought in the Exchange of Mart paper as it was back then in the 80s and I was able to just strip it down to nothing he bought the nuts and bolts I rebuilt it um, my A-level grades probably were too lower than they should have been because of that every minute was in the garage doing this car and then I got a season of racing out of that actually in sort of historic post-historic road sports which you know was kind of racing and that, that's what I did and then on to Formula Ford no no intermediate was Formula First yeah and that is where I made my top gear debut yeah so, so we, can link pod, we can link podcasts here can't we because Tiff uh, on the podcast we did with him talked about his first presenting role being drafted in at the last minute to do something about how to be a racing driver wasn't it and how to drive a lap of Brands Hatch and it wasn't it your car yeah I gave Tiff his big break <laughs> I love this. Yeah, love he this. owes me. The world is interconnected, isn't it? Uh, it's so a small world. We, it's a very small and murky world that we uh, operate in here. But um, yeah, so 1987, Brands Hatch, the guy that ran Brands back then, genius, John Webb. He was an amazing guy. Um, he was so innovative in all the different championships and things. He came up with Formula Ford 1600 in the first place, actually. Anyway, fast forward to the 80s, Formula First. It was this pretty grim single-seater that Van Diemen built uh, with a a uh, Ford CVH engine out of a Ford Fiesta. 
transversely mounted across the back of this thing. It was awful to drive. In hindsight, I thought it was amazing. I mean, so because I was working at Brands Hatch back then, effectively, I ended up inheriting the development car. They sold loads and loads of these things. It was a big success. John promoted it brilliantly through. He got Cellnet to sponsor it. They were the big sponsor and everything at the time and uh, got Top Gear to cover it. And the way they chose to cover that championship was through a driver, and that was me. And that was all you know, done because I'd been ferreting around and mechanicking as a, you know, as a, you know, a gopher at the racing school. So, one, you know, fortunately, if you do well at one thing and people like you, good things happen. And, and so the next step for me was that they were looking for a driver. They thought of me. And uh, as a result of that, a mini documentary about my fantastic debut single-seater season kicked off in uh, 87. It was horrendous. So, so at that point, you love racing. Yeah. You're doing okay. You've proved you can drive a car. You know your way around a car. You can take one apart and rebuild it. Well, so I when did quite a few times, actually. I smashed it up so regularly. <laughs> I worked for a year for nothing to buy the bits and um, won the last race of the year. So I crashed a lot very graphically onboard cameras were a new thing back then so there's some really embarrassing onboard footage of me shunting um uh, but yeah won the last race of the year and it was just enough to clinch someone helping me make a step up into a formula four and, and you, so i'm always fascinated about the mindset here because I, I didn't drive cars when i was that young and i never ever thought i could ever be a racing driver and i like you i'm not but i sit in race cars now and again but did you think i could be Senna I could be a Mansell what were you thinking at that point no and again um going back to this Top Gear documentary there's a there's a clip uh, and I I don't think anyone's seen this thing for decades because I, I think I've got a VHS tape of it somewhere well I think we can so say, I, say it's about to be I doubt it transmitted onto YouTube's my channel so <laughs> we can see it pretty soon well because you might have hair then as well <laughs> I had a lot of hair then I, yeah exactly um no um they they asked the same question so think of something original to ask next time Chris would you please yeah, yeah, well. <laughs> but what was uh, your I think Chris Goffey asked me that question was, uh, it, was it one leg yeah. up on the bumper yeah yeah definitely yeah but did it did, what did, so what he did asked you the question and I said no do you know what um not really uh I just want to be a um, professional driver in this business um I'm going to university to study engineering and I would be great if I could combine the two things I said that in 1987 that's a truthful statement. I think, I, th- I think you probably acted on it, didn't you? Yeah, I didn't stay in uni. <laughs> did, <laughs> did, say, did you go to uni? Yeah. <laughs> I, did, I went there. I went to Imperial College. Fantastic. Got onto one of the best degree courses you could do in mechanical engineering. And about halfway through that, I just, you know, cars just consumed everything by then. And I just couldn't do both. I was prepping my own race car. I was working on the side to earn some money. And you know what? Lowest priority was a degree. So that went. Do you regret that? Um, I'm, I can say now, no. Um, I, I never have regretted it, actually. But I think had things not turned out quite so well, I might have lived to, to regret it. I'd never recommend it. I mean, it was a bit of a bit of a put everything on red kind of gamble, you know. It's also interesting, isn't it? Because you've got to now growing up kids, one of whom is still at uni. So when they start making drastic threats about their at their academic yeah. career, what do you do when you're the when you're the, the daddy who actually did? walk out of a yeah. degree how do you then say you can't do that and they're smart kids so they know they know i did it <laughs> but the world's a very different place you know i mean I, I i feel like i basically ran away and joined the circus and i got away with it i i um i told my parents i'd left uni about a year later 
So they thought I was still there when I was not. You know, I was at racetracks around the country doing anything. It was at an all. unconnected world, wasn't it? You couldn't follow people on social no. media. You couldn't do anything like no that. No mobile phone to track me down. Nothing like that. So uh, no, and thankfully neither of the kids are remotely interested in either cars or racing. So big relief. <laughs> <laughs> so you, so you're doing Formula Ford at this point, or have you gone to Formula Vauxhall? No, I've gone to Formula Ford. So I'll quickly whiz through the early days because it's kind of you know tried and tested sort of format um scraped through into formula ford did it all myself again um you know i did the formula ford festival when there were like a million cars in it um best result what was the, what was the best, well, best result was getting into the final first time i tried did you because i did it on my own literally nobody even to hold out a pit board um and it was fantastic that's the that's the pit entry warning <laughs> buzzer that for some reason's just <laughs> cracked into life. Wow. Just looking around. What's no there's oh, it's a red flag, isn't it? That's it's a red flag at the RMA track day for anyone that's listening. Um, sounds like so, one of Tiff's so, so, commentary. It does, yeah. That was sounds like Tiff on the limiter, wasn't it? And we were flat. So but I so I did a Formula Four festival and it was nothing when it when it had become, you know, very few cars. But you must. There must be some scalps because everyone talks about their Formula uh, Four years and says, "Well, I, I beat so and so and so." So tell me, who did you have? There must be a couple that oh, you went. Oh, well, we, around those years, it was you know like Schumacher and Frensen and those sort of people. Um, the year I should have done very well uh, was the following year because I'd done okay year one, year two. I got actually got a free drive paid for by a sponsor. Universal Salvage. <laughs> <laughs> Ironically, I didn't crash much that year. Uh, just won quite a few races, but uh, it's always a good laugh. Um, um, but that year, I should have I should have won it really, or should have definitely done very very well. And that was the year that I raced a lot with David Coulthard. He was probably the most successful driver that came out of that year of, of Formula Ford. And of course. You know, he, he didn't even win it either, actually. But um, no, really, really good times. And it was springboard. You know, it was very small world motor racing back then. So is, you... is it very evident at those levels in, that if you're at the front, you're going somewhere? Oh, God, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. David was always going to. But he, he was set the template, actually, of how everybody does it now. So he hit the ground running when he came onto the scene back then. He had been away testing for months and months and months in Alan McNish's old Formula Ford car run by the late David Leslie so proper experience proper prep more than anyone had ever done before and arrived you know at the start of the season like at a million miles an hour he was you know head and shoulders above yeah. us already um and yeah he you know he dominated that year and got picked up by Jackie Stewart he won the the they almost created the McLaren Autosport young driver award around him and, you know, he just had the momentum. And it's all about starting a career with momentum and yeah. a big splash these days. So if you kind of miss miss it in those first couple of years, you've got no chance. I think that's pretty much how it works now. Yeah, It certainly worked for him. Never caught him up. <laughs> <laughs> I passed across a lot of times, actually. So, Chris, yeah. you did as well. I did the, I did the Formula Ford Festival. F oh, this this makes some people laugh I used to work with. When we were doing Drivers Republic, by then, I think it was 08 or 09, the Formula Ford Festival was a you know it was a shell of what it used to be. That was it used to be 150 cars, didn't it, or something? And you had mm. 19 pre-qualifying rounds and people parked out in the third car park because there were so many cars. But it, there weren't many when I was there, and I made it to the final because there was I was sort of nobbing about in the semi, 
and then there was a massive stack in front of me on the penultimate lap and I just drove through as the sea parted and I think I was fourth from last and I think the top five cars just fell off and I suddenly thought, crikey, I'm here. I'm in the final of the Formula 4 Festival and I came last in the final. <laughs> and, who you, and who were you racing against? Um, there were some quite good names in it. There was, a, I think, no, a Tandy was there. And um, there was a couple of good Brazilians, but no, by then it had stopped being the place to yeah. be, sadly. It was a sign of the times. I think the Walter Hayes here still attracts some bigger names, but back there, I think it was just on its final final legs. They put the new Duratec engine in, I think. Um, but it was, it was amazing just to see what goes into it and also to see that actually some young racing drivers can come across as being a bit dull-witted sometimes. But, but actually, those cars are so technical and they are so... You, they, you have to know a lot about setup, don't you? I mean, you, that's where you learn, isn't it? Well, that's where I did learn. That's yeah. exactly where I learned because I won a championship that year with Van Diemen. Van Diemen, I don't know if any you know, one listening really knows the history of that company. They were the manufacturer of junior Formula racing cars back then. So through the 70s and 80s. I mean, everyone drove for Van Diemen. You know, if you were going to be on the ladder to Formula One, you drove, Ayrton Senna drove for Ralph Furman at Van Diemen, you know. So everyone of that ilk uh, had lived in Thetford, had been at the Van Diemen factory, had worked, you know, raced for the factory team and so on. So it was an amazing kind of schooling there. Uh, I won a championship with that car. And then, so this was when I started my development driving sort of career because they needed someone to develop next year's car. So that winter, uh, the, the winter I didn't win the festival, I then spent the, the winter at Snetterton developing the following year's car. And you do learn a lot about car setup, suspension geometry, you know, all of the basics, um, damping and all of that stuff that now I don't know really where you go to to really learn that in such a hands-on way. Racing drivers don't learn it because they get given a spec car to race, you know, with a couple of wing settings and a couple of damper settings. They don't develop anything much from scratch. It's not their fault. It's just the way motor racing is now all of the cars are kind of arrived jump in and they're kind of already there you know um and in the road car industry at the same time it's not really a tried and tested path to learn in such a hands and you know hands-on and nuts and bolts way really so that was great you know i went to snetterson ralph Furman was this legend that had all of the best drivers in the world he'd seen it all before and my first test, I remember going to Snetterton, freezing cold, November, December. Did a, went to the pits, got in the car, did a few laps, completely empty Snetterton, pulled back into the pit lane outside the garage. And the uh, mechanic um, came out eventually and <laughs> sort of said, well, what, what are you doing here? I'm like, well, I've done, done a couple of laps. I've, you know, do you want some feedback? Nah, not really. <laughs> <laughs> Ralph said, you better just keep going till you're quick enough. You know, no point talking to you unless you're within a couple of tenths of a second of the of the lap, you know. So that was it. Good lesson, lesson learned. Don't waste anyone's petrol or tyres. If they're paying you to be there, get on it. You've got to be a driving robot and deliver what they're paying you for. And then you better be right when you start talking. So um, that's a lesson I've often relayed as i've gone through my development driving career employed other test drivers and other people that you know it's not a jolly it's not a track day you know it's not an rma track day when you're developing the next supercar you've got a finite budget you've got to earn your money you know you've got to be right straight away you can't just keep going round and round and round to come up with the same answer 
you know and uh, as i then developed my test driving career in racing cars i used to jump into other people's racing cars and say well i'll set your car up for you way quicker than you will so if you pay me the equivalent of a set of tires i'll find you half a second so you've gone from you did you went from formula ford what was the next step so Formula Ford, um, Formula Renault, with, yeah. again with a Van Diemen, and uh, came runner-up in that championship. Um, and what were now, late 80s still? Uh, so that's 1990. 1990, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Got, uh, got beaten by a fast Brazilian, but beat the world-famous Jason Plato, who we were discussing the other day. <laughs> ah. the TV, you know, <laughs> celebrity like yourself. <laughs> Similar. We'll get JP on here at some point. <laughs> Jason, you'll, you'll have your chance to reply to that. Um, so so then, um, any tin tops after that? Yeah, so that was pretty much when it really started to go a bit tits up. It was early 90s. Um, things were quite expensive. I had a fantastic sponsor that had helped uh, pay for some of my Formula Ford and my Formula Renault racing. I, you know, again, pure luck and pure, you know, again, from Brands Hatch. Someone built a hotel at Brands Hatch. Someone had to supply a radio paging system to that hotel this is how long ago it was and that company was a little company telling over that doesn't exist anymore but the guy that uh, owned and ran that company brian lester was one of the key people and there are probably half a dozen key people in my career that just made it happen and he just gave me enough money to make it possible to do it not a budget by any stretch uh, enough to pay for a not even a, a single formula three race now but um yeah, just scraped through. So, but there was no way I was going to be able to race competitively in Formula Three or anything like that. So, um, I did a few Formula Three thousand races. Long story. Um, essentially, my first one was a bet. <laughs> um, I uh, because I didn't have any money to go on, move on. I raced for a different manufacturer in Formula Renault the next year, which was not a great one. Swift. They weren't as good as Van Diemen, so they thought, right, give Chris a drive. And, you know, maybe we can develop that car to be like the, the Van Diemen. It didn't work. It was awful, actually. It kind of bent in the middle. Now I, now I understand a bit more about cars. Uh, had a, like a hinge around the engine bay. Um, but we got to a race, actually, where the team owner had a few quid and, and had bought all of Eddie Jordan's Formula 3000 team to run various people in British Formula 3000. And we got to a race, and it was desperate. And uh, I said, look, if I can lead this race, or no, if I win this race, you, you've got a spare Formula 3000 car, would you give me a race? And there was no way this cigar-smoking guy was ever dreaming that I would do that because our results had been pretty poor. And it was at Thruxton, and I pretty much knew what to do at Thruxton, and uh, basically just locked out the front suspension as solid as I possibly could, trimmed off all of the rear wing. It was evil to drive, but just about had stability to get through church without lifting and all of that and I led let's say imagine it was a 15 lap race or whatever I, I led 14 of the laps Jason Plato right behind me in his year two of Formula Renault which I think he did go on to win um, and he was in a Van Diemen a car that I had developed actually the previous winter <laughs> and uh, yeah he nicked past me by on the last lap and won it fair and square but um, I got a test out the the guy gave me a test in this car, the Formula 3000 car, and then that led to a race and led to another one. And I got a free drive with Mansell Magic. Nigel Mansell had a hand in a team, and that was a disaster. And that was the end of it. You know, what? unless you're doing things properly, 
don't do them and that we would uh, that, that was not proper at all uh so i had a bit of a breather really at that point because what do you do you know um how, so how psychologically how do you deal with that so you've left university or you haven't finished your degree mm. you've, you've followed a bit of a dream but you'd started off doing it in a structure when it become unstructured yeah so what do you do do you hit the booze that's what i normally do <laughs> i think probably that <laughs> happened yeah <laughs> a good chance good chance the old uh pro racing driver fitness regime wasn't a thing back then um spared around just kept my head above water was do I was doing a bit more testing, so I was still doing bits and pieces of testing racing cars for different people. But then what was happening was this whole other world of the British Touring Car Championship at the time, and it became a massive phenomenon, didn't it? Yeah. So late eighties into the early nineties, and and it was just it's like amazing how it exploded, and it was the world of super touring. And I had a a, a really good uh, friend uh, that had given me some races in a Saab, uh, Lionel Abbott. They, they Abbott, Abbott, Abbott Racing. They Abbott did, Racing. They did these amazing jobs with what was probably the most boring road car on the world. You know, I remember driving one, and they were like a million horsepower turbocharged engines. And they, yeah. so I, um, I did a few races with him, um, and we won the British Production Car Championship, which was not touring cars it was you know more production based stuff they had a sponsor and that sponsor like what i did and he also happened to sponsor a curia cost in touring cars so my whole life has not been planned at all it's just one sort of lucky break uh, to another and um anyway this guy uh, landed me a test in a, a curia cost um Vauxhall cavalier btcc car with uh, ray malloch and um that just sparked and i did all right did well another t it was a test here i drove david leslie's car going back to david and um i got a couple of races out of it and did well in those races led to some support from Vauxhall, which is another massively long story of disappointment <laughs> <laughs> but, um, what the, the, their product history or <laughs> well you'd be the judge of that not me um but um that was my dreams all of a sudden i thought right i've landed on my feet here i'm good at this i'm good enough at this to be as good as anybody else uh, and it was all going very well right up until the moment that the following year we sat down and did our team photo for the Vauxhall factory team with myself, John Cleland and Jeff Allen. Got a photo. That's the only evidence of it, actually. Um, and uh, that's as far as it got, because I think the following day, uh, John decided that he didn't really fancy being in a three car team. And that car became the test car. And I suddenly was given last year's reasonably uncompetitive Cavalier to smoke about in in the privateers sort of uh, thing in in touring cars which was fine i won quite a few of those um james thompson was the main rival in that so i beat him to that in that championship um but yeah it was a good lesson uh, in the politics of it all uh, and but also um again working with ray malloc and that team as their test driver i learned an enormous amount and that was also just a continuing my journey of becoming more and more kind of valuable as a developer of of cars and making cars handle because they all had the same power they didn't have any uh, you know aero back then particularly so it was all about chassis setup damping springs you know that kind of stuff so yeah so you, chapter so then you move on to sports cars mm. and another good story <laughs> i love these go on. so because that touring car stuff had gone pretty well um 
I was definitely a shoe in to get a factory drive, having not got the Vauxhall one the following year. So the Honda thing was l- looking like definite. Uh, got a phone call from the board meeting. Yeah, you've got the drive. You've got the drive. What year is this? Uh, that would be for 95, their yeah. first year in. And then I got another phone call, a bit more embarrassed, about an hour later saying they changed their minds and uh, <laughs> James K was going to do it instead. Like, all right, okay, that's awkward. Um, and then again, just, you know, he was well connected with people that were supporting his racing, that were Honda dealers and all that stuff. And that was that. Um, and something quite similar happened with Alfa Romeo with ProDrive. But, um, and ironically, one of the supporters of James was a Honda dealer called Derek Warwick, who was a super guy. <laughs> Um, but in the end, he was the one that took the Alpha Drive that I thought I had my <laughs> name on it with Pro Drive. Um, How do you navigate your way through this? I mean, emotionally, yes. you're laughing about it now, but yeah, it yeah. must have been. Oh, it crushing. Must have broke you. Mm. Yeah, yeah. So you become quite determined, and that's you know no different to trying to get a career in anything that everyone wants to do. So journalism, TV, film, music. You you feel like a you know a, a failed actor a lot of the time. You know you you say you're a racing driver, but you know, at that point, had, how many times had I been paid to actually race a car? But are you, are you making money at this point in your life or are you, is it quite hand-to-mouth? Oh, very hand-to-mouth, you yeah. know, and you're, you're, you know, kind of, as my wife, Sam, will always re- remind anybody that asks, she was the one earning money when we got married. <laughs> she had a job. Um, and quite right, too. Um, no, you, you, you can scrape, scrape a living. Even back then, you could scrape a living doing manufacturer sort of demo days at tracks. And But I was earning good money testing cars. Developing yeah. cars had become increasingly my thing. I was quite good at it. Um, I was already, you know, being paid to test single-seaters, um, touring cars, Le Mans cars, uh, rally cars. I, I, I did some testing for Opel with their rally program, for Tarmac Rally, for Hyundai with their first WRC car. So, you know, there was quite again i didn't know anybody else doing that kind of work so there were, i wasn't really competing with anybody much for it's that. N- nicely below the waterline as well isn't it because everyone wants to be quite discreet about it so mm. it's not like you're shouting about it at the time but it's like my career now even now there's not many people do what i do so yeah. you know th- there isn't uh, uh, you know, is there an in, opening in the market here for some well, talented yeah, drivers you're, you're, yeah, you're, but they, they, <laughs> unfortunately they've got to tread a kind of fairly unusual and weird precarious path to pick up the different experiences and that's that's the thing there's no there's no course you can go on yeah uh to to do it really and that, there's a there's a turning point in your career that i love it's a conversation that we've discussed about socially over a few beers but i want you to, to tell it now on this yes. podcast it's wonderful and this is the point at which chris gilbin racing driver forward slash development driver under the radar realizes that <laughs> the, the career going forwards might be better served using the latter skill and it's a great conversation yeah well you you giving me credit for actually realizing it because again none of my steps were my decision none of my steps or choices have ever really been you know what i planned to do so you know going from touring cars all of a sudden that dried up even though that was the the happening place for a good few more years um, but someone at ProDrive introduced me to someone at Lotus uh, who happened to have a team going in the world sports car scene at the time. Um, and I actually stepped into Alex Zanardi's shoes when he first went and got his first break to go and do Indy. 
Um, and that was a lucky break and I got that drive and I did that. And, and, you know, the Lotus year and a half was, was great, fantastic, super people on a massive... This is the GT1 Elite, is it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, um, I, no, no, sorry, the Esprit. The Esprit. So, Esprit V8 great Turbo. Car. Great looking car. Also car sponsored as well. It had it also was, car on the side yeah, of it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh man, yeah, I've, I've got visions of those autocar uh, stickers on fire because <laughs> I never finished a stint in that car, let alone a race. And it was often on fire. It was the hardest thing in the world to drive. Uh, again, massive lesson learned in no point having something that's theoretically fast. Lots of trouble usually, serious. Yeah, but, and it was trouble technically, reliably, but, but it was just impossible for me to drive Lo- that. It's a load of lots of trouble usually on fire. <laughs> it was often on fire. Um, but so, again, fortunately, to cut a long story short, I, I packed that one in and I... Um, Got to drive in a privately funded McLaren the following season. Um, and um, McLaren what? F1 GTR. Oh, come on, you see? So it was mega. So all of a sudden, I had to get fit because that thing always finished a race. It was yeah. so reliable. It was the most brilliantly developed thing. It was a proper job. And it was, um, we, we did well. Uh, won the first race. I sat in the car here at Silverstone again. Um, race of my life. What A career-defining race was here as well. The BPR, the the World Championship race. Uh, who here. are you racing with? So, really good friend of mine, Gary Ailes. Um, he was my teammate, and um, he was quick. He and he was a, again someone you should talk to. He'd be hilarious. But on his day, he was quicker than Mika Hakkinen in an F3 car. Just you know, just didn't make it. But um, we raced this thing up against all the factory BMW team, Mercedes, Porsche, all of that. Um, and I did a race here where it was raining like it is here uh, I cocked up the f- start of the race and went from a good qualifying position that Gary had earned to ruining it and I was down to about 15th or 16th at the end of the first lap I'd sort of gone off but after two hours I was leading the race and I you know overtook all of the legends that were in the race you know Leto and Stuck and Soper and all of that lot so it was good you know it was a good day and and um, that helped me with McLaren and my kudos there so I got roped into their development program for the Le Mans 24 hours. In the end, that went well enough that they gave me a drive in the golf car at Le Mans that year. But I was a racing driver. I was just doing racing stuff. Um, drove the two-seater Formula One car that they had a fair bit. I was still a racing driver. And I thought I was like, this is it. I've made it now. I'm getting paid good money to race around the world in racing In a cars. McLaren F1. So this is it, the future. Allow yourself a minute just to smile at that now. Come on. Yeah, yeah. The future was looking bright, and yeah. forget all that touring car rubbish. You know, they yeah. those guys could, I could, they can keep Snetterton and Knock Hill. You know, I was going to <laughs> Suzuka and Laguna Seca. It was great. How old were you at this stage? Uh, thirty. Thirty. Yeah, just turned thirty, and um, so that was all good. And then did that, and they helped me get a, another drive the following year. McLaren did, and it was just working out a good relationship with Gordon Murray, who was on that side of things. Fantastic guy. Jeff Hazel was running the, the operational side. Brilliant mechanics, brilliant engineers throughout, just quality. And anyway, eventually I got, Gordon said, oh, Ron wants to see you. Right. And I had not a lot to do with Ron at that moment. This is time. Ron Dennis, by the way, who not, uh, most of you will know who he is, but obviously Ron is the mercurial owner of McLaren and the guy that's made, uh, he, you know, he's made history. He, he's an absolute legend, but known to be quite a tricky customer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. A, a, a very tricky guy to, for a lot of people, um, but an amazing guy. And what, what he achieved, 
you know, when he took over, well, just throughout, but what he, what he turned McLaren into from what he picked up at the um, beginning of the 80s, which was a, starting to be a bit of a basket case. He took it to, you know, to another level and then another chapter began again. So he is quite an intimidating guy. So you've gone from being Chris Goodwin, who's developed Formula First cars, Formula Ford, and now you're being summoned for a little chat mm. with Ron. So there I was in his office uh, in the old um, McLaren F1 building, Woking Business Park, Unit 21. And I know the address very well because I'll come on to that later. But um, there I was in his office and he said, Chris, right, Gordon and the guys have talked to me, talked a fair bit about you and I've seen what you've been doing for us over the last year or two. And um, we like what we see. And, you know, you work well with the engineers technically and you know you're always around in the workshop and you understand what's happening and um you're technically you know different to the most of the racing drivers that we uh, we we employ um and there i'm thinking well, who have you employed before then all oh, right alan prost it's a different thing but um so he said look chris here's the thing i've got a plan for this company um i and um I want you to be part of it. The thing is, you've got to give up this racing business. Um, you know, GT racing, it's not really all that important. No one's really interested in it. Um, you need to come and work for me, really. Um, I can, I, I'm, you know, I'm talking about giving you a job for life, more or less. Um, and I want you to be part of our journey. I'm going to start a road car business. And you know how the structure of Ferrari is, What more year or less. are we? About, this was, by then it was about 2000. Yeah, um, so they I, I'd seen uh, a demonstration here again at Silverstone of the Vision SLR at the I think the '99 uh, British Grand Prix, and uh, um, we, ironically, I've just demoed my current project at the British Grand Prix this year in the same slot almost, yeah. um, and uh, sort of realised in the back of my head that that was a McLaren kind of project that they were going to do with mercedes-benz back then but i didn't care because i was a racing driver you know so then fast forward a year and there's ron telling me across the desk that really i need to give it all up because i'm not good enough i'm doing something that's not worth doing and here's this job that you know he, he kind of needs a test driver to for, you know form the development of these road cars around and uh, i'm the i'm the guy so I wasn't too sure about it, really, and I took a bit of convincing. I mean, so it's, like, it's like being hugged with one arm and just lightly tapped in the balls with the other, isn't it? What, yeah. did, you, did you take it as a hug or, or well, a kick in the groin? I did have to go go home and sort of have a bit of a ponder about it because if you think about it, I'd spent the previous ten years really trying to get there. You know, with with not ten years actually, few fair few years, busting a gut, going through the highs and lows, thinking I was going to be a superstar, then clearly realizing I'm not, then thinking again I was going to make it, then not. Um, but at that moment, it was going well. Um, but uh, what we did was we then jumped in his car, drove up the road to this muddy building site, and they'd already sort of broken ground and were working on um, what became the MTC, the, the McLaren Technology Centre. And it was just this massively grand plan and the ambition of the guy. And, you know, you, don't, you just look at him, you think, right, I don't believe anyone, anyone on the planet is going to pull this off except for you. And I... You know, I, th I was right. You know, he did. He did an amazing job to start from effectively scratch what became a, a, a pretty impressive road car business. 
What he did do, though, was quite cool. He said, okay, so I, c- I can see I'm taking a, a little bit to convince you. So what what job do you want then? What do you really want? So I said, oh, I've got you there. Now I know exactly what I want this job to be. Two years ago, uh, I went to Maranello to look at the Ferrari F50 GT1 car, a project that never happened, actually. They built a test car, um, and I went to go and visit it because the team I was going to race for was going to buy one of these cars, and we were going to race it. And so I went to Fiorano to watch it test. And Nicola Larini bowled up in his Alfa Romeo road car to drive the car. But first he had to jump into the Formula One cars that were going to be shaken down and flown out to the Japanese Grand Prix. Did that. Then he jumped into a 550 Maranello road car, which was a project at the time or about to be released. And he did some road car stuff. that I had no idea what he did, but he drove a road car around the track and thought that was pretty cool. Uh, then he jumped into the GT1 car and did the test that I was there to look at. So I said, Ron, that's what I want to do. I want to do a bit of everything. And that's exactly what I ended up doing. For 20 years uh, I, at McLaren, I drove most of their Formula One cars. I developed all of their road cars, all of the GT racing cars, raced them, and had the most wonderful time. But imagine having Ron Dennis to say, right, we're going we're gonna to take a little, a little detour on the career here. Yeah. If, do you think, looking back, if anyone else had said that to you, you'd have gone, I'm a racing driver, mate do one yeah absolutely not a chance i mean the guy was super convincing just look at the deals he's pulled off over you know over history the sponsorship deals the driver deals the manufacturer deals i mean you know he's a he's a very convincing salesman but he delivers you know he i learned an immense amount working working for him he's not everybody's cup of tea he's a very divisive character um but for me he's been massively massively influential in my life the way it turned out Um, but also, you know, inspirational in the way I go about things in terms of attention to detail and professionalism. I'm not him. I'm not like him in in my character or anything like that, but there are certain things about the way he went about building up McLaren to be what it became that I think is the only way to go if you're... It's that attention to detail that means you enjoy racing with me, isn't it, when I turn up without my helmet, not knowing what day of the week it is. You do look at me sometimes like I'm from a different planet when we go racing. (laughs) You are. But, uh, no, I think... Um, so let's before we I want to talk about the SLR before we have a break and then we'll do the McLaren road car years afterwards but let's just talk about the SLR so I can remember being at Mill uh, no being at Chobham so the long cross test track in about 1998-99 and I've gone along there and there were on, there's a thing that we used to call the straight and level which was so there's the corner and then you've got the big slopes that go up and the thing that links them is a, is a sort of perpendicular flat piece of road it's not very long it's about 150 200 meters long can't go very fast um and you might use it for company might come and do some steering work there or once very interestingly they got a load of students and they tested the effect of different drugs and alcohol on driving and that that was a three-month setup where they just basically plied journalists with high quality mdma no sorry students and then just watched them drive around cones or, or hit trees as was the case but on that straight and level i digress was a mclaren 550 being driven at speed towards bits of four by two. It was just being clattered over bits of wood and it didn't like it very much. And I thought, what's going on here? And being perennially nosy, I went over and said, excuse me, what in the name of arseholes are you doing to that 550 Maranello? And they said, we don't want to talk about it, but they all had McLaren shirts on. And it turns out that that was the beginnings of the SLR, wasn't it? You bought a 550 for development, hadn't you? Yeah, yeah, that, that was... Um, so the ins and outs of the deal i don't know but the effectively mclaren and mercedes-benz 
did this joint venture project that was McLaren basically engineering a as much of a supercar as they could possibly engineer up into this already defined shape that I had seen in 1999 whizzing around here as a show car. So the shape already existed and they wanted to build this, you know, a McLaren underneath it. Um, bit and of a problem already, isn't it? Given that the thing was 14 feet too long at the front. Bit tricky. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, so the project, so funnily enough, the project started out with a Ferrari 550 being the, um, the, the target uh, market and the benchmark vehicle. But fast forward then a couple of years, I find myself going around Paul Ricard with the Daimler Chrysler board uh, in attendance, me in a, a um, the, the finished SLR um, McLaren Mercedes uh, on the track with Klaus Ludwig as Mercedes representative in an Enzo Ferrari, which has suddenly become <laughs> the benchmark vehicle. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, it was time time to sign the project off and see if we'd achieved our target or not. And it was amazing. And we had to, yeah. It, the, the SLR was surprisingly quick around Paul Ricard on that day, I can tell you. And yeah, uh, yeah it was a, one of the best laps of my life to <laughs> get it to match an Enzo time. And it did actually, uh, weirdly enough, it, it matched an Enzo time. And um, It wasn't lacking grunt, was it? No, it was not lacking grunt. And it, it, handled, it had stability, it was geared up for a particular kind of track and um, it was very much my learning, uh, start of my proper learning curve with a road car program, but also very much the learning curve in how road car businesses and the road car industry works. And... Uh, just a, my overriding memory of that sign-off day was me sat next to Ron, him driving the SLR, with him racing Professor Jürgen Hubert, who was driving the Enzo, with Klaus Ludwig getting him to go faster. And it was literally a race between the two of them, with, be, with being whipped by their pro drivers as, <laughs> as they were going around, and it was hilarious. But Brilliant. I, I, remember, I remember road testing that thing for Autocar when it came out and being pretty perplexed by what the car had become um i was fascinated by it in places i was really impressed by it in places i was completely confounded largely because i couldn't pull out of a t-junction in the uk because it was, I was sitting so far back but it, it, it for me i'm writing and thinking this exists actually as a metaphor for the complications of of the marriage between two very different cultures you know you've got this McLaren organization which is it's turning into a road car business but it's ultimately a racer's fiefdom isn't it it's a guy who goes racing versus one of the biggest and the oldest car company in existence how did they come together or did they come together well you know that's experience that's standing me in very good stead yeah currently <laughs> yeah you know, um, mixing motor racing culture with uh, road car culture is not easy uh, from the very top of a business all the way down to, to workshop level um, there's just challenges where there's just differences and difference differences of experience differences of skill level differences of expectation differences of work rate differences of um, expectation you know there's just differences and and I found myself very much then as I have done in my recent years now working as a kind of a go-between or a translator often, you know, um, a bit of a diplomat. That's not really the right word, but helping those two two kind of cultures. Managing the politics. Well, it's not so much politics, but it's just, you know, a bit ma matchmaking almost, really, making people fit and making making different parts of the jigsaw work work together. So back then, yeah, it was, it was um, actually it was a three-way thing because Mercedes-Benz was one part of it. AMG, actually a very separate part of it, 
um, and McLaren and making those three parts work. And there was a lot of politics, clearly. There was a lot of money. Uh, but technically pulling that car together when we had a carbon tub and Gordon Murray and, you know, every, everything that he brought to the party with his guys. But then we had, um, I think I'm right in saying it's a steering rack out of an A-class and a diff out of a Van AO. And there was a, a certain amount of carryover components yeah. and electrical stuff that was, a you know, just had to be fit, fitted in there. So... It wasn't a kit car as such, but it had it had a certain box of bits that we had to play with. Um, Gordon Murray's famously not that complimentary about the car, is he? He 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 puts it down as a, it's probably the challenge that he wanted to be his last at McLaren, didn't he? I think did it, did it, was it was it the straw that broke the camel's back for him? Uh, or well, not? no, because the, the plan then was look that was a start, yeah. and that was a necessary start, and for McLaren in Woking and their new factory in Woking, it. it the, the partnership with I, my view is that the partnership with Mercedes-Benz was absolutely essential in getting McLaren to where they are currently um, as an independent road car business because there was an enormous amount of stuff that the Mercedes side of the equation brought durability manufacturing um, techniques uh, quality that those kind of things that hand building a few F1 GTRs or, or brilliant racing cars doesn't teach you any of that stuff uh, and that actually is kind of the almost the dull bit of building road cars but it makes or breaks your brand and you know some people struggle with that more than more than others currently so the plan is that mclaren and mercedes will remain together and there will be other cars yes well that was the plan as far as i understood it and it didn't happen um and i think then uh, around that time um, we had car projects lined up, which were all going to be Mercedes engine car projects. That's no secret. And I was working at Autocar at that point, and we were running a lot of scoop stories at that point. The news pages, every other month, there would be a, there's going to be a mid-engined McLaren Mercedes coming. And of course, it didn't happen, but those cars did eventually appear, didn't well, they? Well, were, there were lots of scoop pictures and artistic impressions of silver rear mid-engine cars, weren't there, yeah. in Autocar? And then... A bit of a quiet period at McLaren, and then a few years later, very similar-looking cars appeared in orange <laughs> with a different engine, uh, and they weren't the same car. They weren't the same projects, and the project numbering system in McLaren marks that very clearly. That you know, um, uh, the, the next projects that that happened, P11 was the designated sort of internal name for the the first McLaren, the 12C. Um, they were new car projects, but there was that period in the middle where. There was a recovery from being part, effectively part of Mercedes to being an independent and uh, quite a brave, and then another massively brave step for Ron and for Mansour OJ and the, the shareholders of McLaren to go it alone. I can't see how you do it now. Time for a break. That's Tiff again. <laughs> that's, so that's a fantastic point to take a break. So uh, listeners, go and have a... Uh, I'd recommend Jack of Cakes last, Cakes last time. I'd say go for a Tunnock's Caramel and a cup of tea and a comfort break if you want it. And we'll be back um, with at Edward Lovett, that's Edward Lovett, and at Chris Goodwin Drive, Chris Goodwin, um, to discuss the McLaren years. It'll be fascinating. Um, I can't wait to hear all about that because they are some of the best road cars I've ever driven. So see you in a minute. Collecting cars, the safe, smart and simple way to buy and sell collectible cars. An online auction platform for the UK and Europe. 
follow us on Instagram at Collecting Cars and also CollectingCars.com. The CollectingCars.com podcast with Chris Harris and Edward Lovett. Welcome back to this Collecting Cars podcast with uh, Edward Lovett at Edward Lovett. I'm Chris Harris at Harris Monkey and uh, Chris Goodwin, who is at Chris Goodwin Drive on Instagram. Now, um, the McLaren years. So the the McLaren SLR is now finished. They're all sold. Done lots of different variants, including one with no windscreen that I never understood. And the Sterling Moss. The Sterling Moss. Well, that's a popular. It is thing worth all the money now, now, isn't it? So, but the cars are worth a lot of money. They're very rare. And now, what a Ferrari but just Ferrari made. Ferrari are doing the exactly Monza. that. There's, I don't know. Loads of manufacturers are doing things like that. I've always they? thought windscreen's quite a handy thing in a road car, yeah. but yeah, yeah. Um, they are when you're doing 350 kilometres an hour, <laughs> which is that is the top speed of a Sterling Moss SLR, which was. Because it had 720 horsepower then, didn't it? Yeah, it's quick, quick thing. Doing that around Nardo, and we had to do 350 to get paid. What did your crash helmet look like afterwards? Well, yeah. Uh, Pop mark. I, I, I've actually blocked all of that period out of my life. It was a bit fraught. <laughs> <laughs> so, the MP4-12C. So, we know these McLaren road cars are coming. Um, the The sort of leak process from Woking means that the motoring press is being invited in now and again to talk about the project, to to see the odd design sketch, to to have some sort of leaked imagery and information, and and there's a massive amount of excitement about this vehicle. This is sort of 2010, 2011 now, um, and I'm part of conjuring up that excitement because I was amazed this was happening. This 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 small racing car company that really had just done one slightly weird project the SLR is now going headlong to take on Ferrari and that was a very very simple aim wasn't it we're going to make a range of cars that show you that that maybe Ferraris aren't the best mid-engine sports cars on the planet and you're a massive part of this now where on earth do you begin with that hiring for your small business if you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn you're looking in the wrong place That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Um, so we started... Well, we started with the SLR, really. You know, that's that's what started it, and the team around that. There, um, some people, you know, morphed into what became the twelve C kind of car project. But obviously, the scale of it was bigger again. Um, but look, I, I think the 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 core group of people working on that project stayed with the business for quite some years, um, and were responsible for most of the cars that I worked on. Um, through my time which was up to and including the 
so from 12C right through to the Senna and the 600LT. Um, and it was very much an attitude of the product comes first, which might be a slightly naive way to go about the car business. And that that is something that I know where my boundaries are uh, in these sort of discussions and in, in this sort of thing. I don't know how you do what Ferrari do in terms of their sales and marketing and their residual values, their resale values, their you know waiting lists and stuff. I think it's kind of smoke and mirrors or whatever, but it's amazing that what they do. Um, but McLaren just went at it from the word go. It's all about the pro- product. Let's do this amazing product that's new, innovative, daring, and that, that was even represented in the name, the MP412C, you know, very scientific, very objective, it's a, you know, but it was our first, it was a first attempt, you know, it was not a bad first car. Oh, it was amazing. You know it, one, I think it's one of my favourite memories of my of my working life was being invited down for that first evening at Woking. So we came down to MTC, six journalists, I think, and uh, we were told that Ron would come in and introduce this new car to us. And then the following day, we would be flown in a private jet down to uh, Portimao, where we'd drive the car for the first time. Beforehand, Ron wanted to tell us about the car. I'd never experienced that before. That, for me, was like Enzo Ferrari inviting you to his living room to tell you about the new F40. You know, this is the stuff I'd read about as a kid, and now I finally had the chance to be telling those stories. And I was, I was, I'd have paid 10 grand to be there. Someone was paying me to be there. And we got there, and I remember Anthony Sheriff, who was then running the McLaren Road Car side, was there as well. Um, and everyone looked tired they looked like they'd been burning the midnight oil to get to this place as all it was a bit like a race car program you know you're always you know you're you're, you're talking up the last bolt just before the cover comes off then you stand there smiling as if you've got it all under control but behind there's some frantic behavior but everyone looked a bit frantic and anthony stood there and said well this is the car and they had they had two cars they had a bare chassis to show this mono cell i think it was called wasn't it the mono cell this this carbon tub that McLaren was making a statement that because of its motorsport background it was going to have a carbon tub and they had a finished car with the bodywork on it and we stood there Anthony stood for five ten minutes and just said this is it this is the car you're going to drive it tomorrow over to you Mr Dennis and Ron stood there and said I'm, I'm not going to be here for long I'm not going to tell you what to do I'm not going to tell you how to report on this car that's your job you drive it you report we've made the car I've got nothing more to say about it. 45 minutes later, <laughs> he was still going and he and he came out he, he came out with the immortal. The PR people were in the background wanting to to turn him off and they couldn't turn him off because he's Ron Dennis and he said, "I can tell you this is a better car than a 458 because I've got a spreadsheet that tells me it's better." And I it was just he was feeding us just manner from heaven it was just words from the gods as a journalist you're just scribbling it down your notepad thinking oh give us another one Ron give us another piece that we can put in this story that we'll just read brilliantly and and we went and drove the car and it was mind-bending it was mind-bending in as much as the fact that it was unlike anything else I'd driven because it had this cross-linked hydraulic suspension it rode like no other sports car actually before or since it was it had the ride of a seven series in terms of comfort and yet when you got it on track it was very agile it, it was it was a bit weird because it had an open differential and it it was the whole thing was unlike anything else i would driven before a combination of a of what i thought a ferrari should drive like and how i imagined a modern day lotus might drive like that's how i had it in my head but there were lots of question marks about it for us but again it all came back to this have some perspective as a journalist this is their first attempt at this type of car 
and they're almost as good as the company that's been doing it for 50, 60 years and is the best in the business. That was my summary of the 12C when I first drove it. Looking back, I mean, the cross-link hydraulic suspension thing must have been so tricky to get right. Yeah, um, I've often thought about that in my current project, which is quite a complex one. We'll get on to that in a minute. Chris is, Chris is developing the Valkyrie at the moment. We'll come to that in a minute. There's too many big things to deal with. Let's start with this one. Well, but, uh, go, but going back to the 12C, the, the complexity for me back then, I, I used to, I did uh, wake up at night, or I actually used to dream this um, uh, matrix uh, of all of the different inputs and outputs that the suspension system had, and uh, trying to get my head around how how to tune it. I mean, if you think about most cars are pretty easy. You've got some dampers, you know, you've got bump rebound, high and low speed, you've got springs, you've got maybe some bump rubbers and packers, you've got camber caster, you've got an anti-roll bar, got some ride height to play with, some basics on the suspension geometry that you only get wrong rather than gain much out of, you know, so it's just some basics you need to get right, some housekeeping on that. Pretty easy, really. But now all of a sudden... You've got this thing that's not that. You no anti-roll bars on there. Um, you've got a, a comp- constantly variable damping, you know, uh, which you want to make the car feel right, ride right, handle right, but also then use to your advantage to gain performance. Um, no diff. You've got this brake steer thing. You've got an active air brake. All of those things calibratable and tunable to complement each other. Uh, and if you get it wrong, not. So it was it was a real mind-bending experience. Fortunately, again, massive faith put in the development team and the technical team um, it, from the company. So they hired really smart people, uh, not experienced people, smart people. So I was surrounded by a few very experienced guys, but a lot of really bright kids from Cambridge that were just like rocket science. Um, it was rocket scientists and... You know, a few of them you'd struggle to think how they how are they going to find the test track, let alone operate when they get there. But you know, really clever people, and um, in the end, it gelled, and we got on top of the technical issues. But you know, you 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 say at that launch, everyone was looking frazzled. Yeah, I mean, this was a we were frazzled. That was lastminute.com. Was it launched too early? Uh, no, it was launched at the right time to sell some cars to keep the business alive. Yeah. Um, and to a specific customer as well at, at the time. I, re- I remember exactly where I was when that car was launched. I was in a hotel in Bologna about to go to the launch of the 458. Oh, it was on the day. It was uh, all, yeah. all, your, where, the, all the Ferrari customers at the launch. What about what about this? Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, that that I mean, it, like, and, every, it, and it worked. It, you know, it did work. And every road car from every ma- every niche of of the road car world, every everything is launched uh, to a time uh, to a budget. And every engineer that works on every single one of those projects could do with another week or two. You know, there's always somebody. One of the guys I worked with there was famous for saying. Okay, time to put down your pencil, you know, and you could always, always go more. And so the 650S was the car, really, with with a bit more time. Yeah, that you uh, with a bit of a different shape and all the rest of it. But but that was a, a more together, more more finished and tuned car, both on the powertrain, um, the, the suspension system, steering, and so on. Uh, but that's just life, you know. Every, every project I ever did there, you'd look back on it now and think, oh could have done it a bit better but at the time you know it's the best you can do so 12c 
was not a bad start. 650 was the next one, and that was better. Then we started working on the P1 and the 570 and the, you know, the the um, 720 and the 675 LT. And each, each one that we, the same core team, worked on um, the design um, and then the development of that design and got better and better at it. And if you think, you know, the, the amount of time we were in business, by the time we got to a 675 LT, or a 720. How many years is that from launch of not long uh, 12C? I, I it was only four or five years, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah. I think I think for me, if you take a step back from the from 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 the cars, as a statement of intent, the 12C was a was a it was a numbers car, a spreadsheet car, and it felt it was lacking some emotion. That was the consistent comment in the press and this is when I started communicating with Mr Goodwin about road cars because I'd met him before but we didn't really know each other and um, and the one thing I said to them was look spreadsheet's fine lap time's fine but it is a road car and it, it's lacking some playfulness that you can't switch it all off and, and go sideways and it hasn't got a diff and stuff and he, Chris would quite understandably say to me yeah but it you know that's not what people do in these cars I said yeah but it's what sells them because that image on the front of Evo magazine of the thing fully lit coming out of a third gear corner. That may not be what you do with it, but it's it's a bit like homes and gardens. You know, you can't your house doesn't look like that, your holiday home, but you imagine that it might look like that for one day a year. And I think I think there was a bit of that that did rub off on McLaren. And I remember seeing that the the telling moment for me was that the press photography for the 650 was suddenly the iconography of McLaren had gone from being very sort of high-speed corners, very accurate driving, and suddenly we got these videos of this thing coming. I think it was shot down at um, Ascari, and there was just this white 650S with smoke coming off the back tyres. It was like, ah, right, so they're, they're coming to meet us a bit on this. And there was, in the way they drove, the cars became more playful, more fun, less about just generating a lap time, because there's no doubt that a six, uh, sorry, a 12C, when it came out, was much quicker around the lap than, than a 45A. It was a different gravy. Um, but the cars became more playful. And I think there were two turning points for me in the development of the cars. One was... Um, uh, the P1, and the P1 was just something else, wasn't it? I, I, I still, I think that's the most impressive new super hypercar I've ever driven for the way that it made me feel that day. Dragged out to Abu Dhabi, didn't get much sleep, had to drive it through the night because we only had the track for about four hours during the night or something to do it. Sat with his nibs here, and I just, I couldn't believe this thing with the torque feel of the electric motors, the performance, the way that it looked. It, it's still the most staggering of those vehicles I've driven. I just love the thing. I mean, you must be immensely proud of that car. Well, I am, and 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 actually, just you know that that whole very short journey from 12C to there, it was very important, very interesting. What you're saying, you're absolutely right. I mean, it wasn't. I won't give you full credit for it, but you know that your message and that the message from customers, from the media. It was new news. It was all new news to it to a lot of us. I mean, we weren't exclusively a bunch of uh, racing guys or guys, super brains from Cambridge or whatever. There were some road car, you know, it was some road car experience within the company, but not so much. And and the dominance of the racing of Ron and the racing culture and stuff did lead largely to the twelve C being what it was, but it wasn't necessarily all by design a lot of it was we didn't know what we didn't know you know yeah. and then you start to get feedback and so you know we invested an enormous amount of time and effort in trying to understand actually 
what makes the driving experience that's going to make someone love a car or have fun that you can't measure you know what's the fun factor you know you you know my favorite drive is my fiat 500 yeah you know i love that car it's an old fiat 500 and it just gives you so much driving joy it's nothing at all to do with any performance metric um so in a very short space of time, I personally, and I know we we as a group, um, invested a, ma- a massive amount of time in trying to understand how to make the cars more fun, but in a, not in a mutually exclusive way to the performance. So we never, ever sacrificed performance for fun or showbiz. And that was always something that was we would use as kind of a derogatory comment about a car we'd seen that had some showbiz feature or showbiz technology that was on there just for the sake of it so you know i think i could always stand up and say you know a press launch of any of those products that they were genuine performance cars um without unnecessary technology everything was on there for a reason but when you've got the option to tune your on off throttle response in a particular way you know in a racing car if you drive a racing car on the road it feels awful right but it does the lap time on it because for for flat out performance driving you don't need that last bit of drivability, at, you know, on the tip in or mid mid corner. You're on full throttle nearly all the time. You know, the the steering feel. You don't need it to be quite so communicative. You know, it's more about grip. Um, so there was a lot of stuff that I learned, and uh, you know, and we all injected into the following cars. That was more about the character, the way in which you wanted to approach the performance. So, the suspension setup. Um, the way I developed a tyre with Pirelli to to give that breakaway characteristic that did make it easy to drift, so it wasn't just going to be a snap. So there was a bit of an operating window when you were ro- over-rotating the rears so that you could feel the, the, the contact patch at the front, so you could just feel the limit and not go past it, um, so you wouldn't generate understeer unnecessarily. Um, all those sort of things were just subjective feel things that they're certainly my trademark now. It's what I bring to the party if I develop a car all of the unmeasurable stuff but the p1 the p1 we had so many choices to make in that car we could have made it dull's not the right word um we could have made it um calmer more developed feel like a porsche 918 which is a great engineering exercise less emotion attached to driving one of those things or we could exaggerate some of its features and at the same time as developing that p1 i was also racing my can-am mclaren at goodwood which is that is a a ride and that is something you look back on with hairs if i had hair sticking up and you know you've lived if you've done a race in a car like that by the way he won several times he won so many times at goodwood that he's not allowed to race it anymore because he's too fast (laughs) so if anyone would like to buy the uh, chassis number one mclaren m1b driven by chris amon bruce mclaren the only factory car in history still exists um i can't drive it anymore so it's for sale um no but that that thing really made me think do you know what i want to inject a bit of that into this p1 because it deserves it it's it should be that kind of animal of a car and um and we did similar with the senna you know a few years later we chose to give it a particular character um without losing any of its performance maximize the performance but make it a beast make it a ride that is is something worth talking about and we had a fantastic moment on that p1 launch right so um we're not at that point we're not mates we just we know each other and whenever we see each other at an event 
say hello and um i i've got increasing respect for what he's doing with the uh, with the McLaren road cars because they they're definitely things that i'm liking more and more he's done 650s which i thought was fantastic we go out in the p1 on the road and we're in abu dhabi so on abu dhabi plates and we head off just to do a bit of a road section for the film that went up on youtube whenever it was 2014 would it have been probably was 14 wasn't it and um so we go out on the road and once we've recorded a bit of being serious and, and talking about how usable it is on the road, and he's literally, it's like having the salesman next to you. He's there going, now put it in this mode and see what it does here. And so we try them all. And the thing is bending my mind, frankly. I'm mean, like, give it a couple of squirts. And the P1 is a great car in the way that it suggests what it can do when it's going at low speed. It's a special car at low speed, which is a trick. And on the way back, the GoPro still running on the dashboard. I start winding him up. He's going to hate me for this now. So I say, so... Have you ever called Ron, Ronald McDonald? And he goes, I'm not answering that. And he just looks straight forward with a massive grin on his face. And I go, the camera is still rolling. And I, I go for about 10 minutes. I just try to get him to say Ronald McDonald on the, on the, on the GoPro. And he's so professional, he won't do it. He just, he just starts ignoring it, looking at the window and answering totally different questions to the one I'm asking. Go on, just say McDonald then. I will not say it, Chris. I will not say it. It's a, and I've got the film somewhere. It's, it's just him, me giggling like an eight-year-old, trying to get the McLaren test driver to say Ronald McDonald in a McLaren P1. So I got the measure of you that day, <laughs> and nothing's changed. <laughs> he wouldn't do it. He wouldn't do it. But that was, a, I'll really, I will treasure that day. What an honour to be one of the few people to be invited to drive this, this, it was spitting flames. It had a thick end of a thousand horsepower, and it was lighting the rears up in, I remember driving underneath the hotel and sliding it through that section, hitting the limiter, blue flames coming out the back, filming it and thinking, this thing's got number plates. How on earth is this even possible? And I still think from the rear, when the, when the spoiler's up and you can see into the gizzards through those grills at the back, it, it's that, that is the apotheosis of a, what a hypercar should be. It's gorgeous, isn't it? Oh, and it's still a great-looking machine. And then, and I think that for me was when people talk about the DNA of McLaren, they they talk about the six seven five being the changing point. But I think the P one was the one that altered everything for me. I think you, it was almost like McLaren became totally comfortable in its own skin with the cars it was going to produce. And then after that just came this rampant confidence. We got 675LT that was launched and it was like, wow, look at this thing. And the way that it drove, it just drove like a P1 without the electrics in it, didn't it really? It was just a stunning machine. Yeah, well, they overlapped. Those projects overlapped and it was the same mindset same expertise the same guys that were contributing um but you know that all of the detail every guy that was working on any of the attributes of the car whether it was engine gearbox steering you know suspension geometry or the damping or the, you know the tire everything was everyone knew by then we'd worked it out you know i mean watching you skid at p1 you know around yas marina and then rewind to the original 12C launch where we didn't want anybody to actually drive it um, with the ESP switch off at all. You know, didn't want any wheel spin or skids at all because we didn't think that was the right thing. You know, that that's how far and fast... It was we, only three years, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think that, the you know, McLaren as a as a whole has been massively underestimated in, in, how, in the challenge it has had as a startup company and how quickly it's evolved. You know, so you have to say you've got, um, you know, for, for me, I would say it, but I'm full of admiration for the, the the whole group of people, what we did there in that period of time. So Loved it. We then go through 570 and the 540 as well, which were 
for me, they were exceptional cars, but they, they'd almost become unexceptional to us in their ability because we now expected excellence from you. So you've gone from 2011 to what are these people about? They're the new kids on the block to, oh, it's another great McLaren. It's amazing how quickly that had happened. And I think the 570 almost suffered for that. People just went, that's great. Well done. We, well, we didn't expect anything else already. That's, a, that's a, an amazing change. But the, I think the car that, that brought home to me just how far you'd come... As a, as a team was 720. 720S is for, is for me still the most complete super sports car, whatever you define it as being, ever made. Um, and I, and I, I say that for two reasons. One, purely from, from the feedback you have as a driver. You, you can't, when you get out of one, you can't quite believe it does all those things, that it can be driven so, so quietly and comfortably on the road. And the way that it then just bends your face on a racetrack is amazing. And, and, the, and the current Ferrari at the time was... Um, a four five eight, then four eight eight laterally, and the gap in lap time between a four eight eight and a seven twenty was so much larger than anyone really knew. And Ferrari were clever because I don't think you'll ever see a lap time comparison between the two. I don't think they ever allowed it, but around Silverstone it would be multiples of seconds. It would be three or four seconds, wouldn't it? So you, you know, yeah. So you were and the rest, you, yeah. you were almost over delivering in terms of performance. I mean, it, the seven twenty could have been twenty percent slower and still been the best, couldn't it? Well, this is where I, 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 um, I'm the first to admit that I now then start to not really fully understand the car business and the car market and how you put a price on things because the performance of that car, for me, it, it, it matched or exceeded many, many other cars from other brands that were double the price. Um, um, but, you know, we drilled deeper and deeper and deeper into the detail of everything to get more and more performance out of it, more feel. The gear shifts were amazing. You know, the amount of effort we'd spent on the throttle response and, you know, the damping control was out of this world, a super clever uh, concept for the software that controls the damping that drove even more performance out and grip out of the thing. And it was like such a massive effort to get more and more performance. And then I don't, you know, that, that would be the McLaren I would have in my garage right now. He heard it there. So the bloke that developed all the McLarens that you want, he'd have a 720S. Yeah, I mean, it's an amazing car, isn't it? Of course it is. It's like, if you really put, even if, if you then did drill back to objective numbers and do lap times and performance, and real-world performance, drive up a mountain and back, I don't know what can really, really beat that in a genuine, you know. And yeah. I'm, also, I'm big enough and bad enough to understand how a lot of these performance tests really happen. Yeah. Um, but in real cars that come off a production line, I can't see how you can beat that. I don't know what 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 does. So it's amazing, really, that um, they're not more popular than they are. <laughs> well, I think the truth of that is that, that the audience is still the same. We talk about this a lot. The audience for these cars is not really growing. Mm. I think with MP124C, from a customer point of view, I think you'd hurt, hurt a lot of customers financially and just with the product quality that they're so far from returning back to the brand that unfortunately they weren't the first there to be putting their money on the table for a 720s and that's the difference you know you're you're on the engineering side it's your job just to to define what the car is and what a lovely bubble it is to live in i yeah. can tell you yeah, yeah. yeah i do i, I do I, I am absolutely i fully fully understand that i i have got the best job in the car industry because i do all of that stuff and then I don't have to then go out and... and it's not your it. fault if it doesn't sell. No. Well, I think well, it, well it, could, it would be if I did it wrong, but yeah, I don't yeah. think... Well, you've never, any I've, of those cars, I don't I've never read out. a road test of that era of McLaren saying they were shit to drive. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I think the reality is that 
You know, I there think are, that, there are too many out there, yeah. and and seven twenty residuals have have taken an absolute burden. But, but they have, so, but they are they you know they they've, they've stabilised. But now, that, I would you know say. if you can buy that car, so there are people paying. You go and inspect a Carrera, you know, a new nine nine two Carrera two. You could easily spend one hundred thirty thousand mm. pounds on that car. If you, if you put your hand in your pocket for a bit more, you can have the best supercar ever made. Yeah. I, I still find that compelling, and yeah. I think people will wake up to it soon. Well, they, they, what, they, uh, and that they will, and they're buying used cars well, because yeah, that, to, for two hundred and eighty grand, and they know as oh, they, I know yeah, that that's the well, the, that's you know that purpley blue color. You can't see it because you're listening to this, but one just flashed past on this track day, and that purpley blue color, a seven twenty. I just look at it and think. God, I want one of those. It's a fantastic motor vehicle. So, 720S, your last, the, the last McLaren, the last two that you did were Senna and the 675LT. Uh, 600 LT, Sorry, 600 LT. And Senna, yeah. So they they were finished um, finished the dynamic calibration and stuff, and then yeah, then I then I left. So they went into, into production a few months after. So a sad day for you. You've you've yeah. you've given twenty nearly twenty years of your life there, or and they've given you some back. So some reciprocal love. And but speed, on speed tell you were involved. No, no, no not uh, not at the early stage. No, no. I, I sat in. A, they just a, took a photo of you. A, yes, that's essentially <laughs> yes. pretty much. Okay. Yeah. 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 Um, yeah. And. So you, and we won't go into the ins and outs of that, but we'll, so you've left the company um, and uh, you've been poached to go to another organization, right? Um, which is this nascent uh, Aston Martin hypercar called the Valkyrie. Um, not, not a bad project to move on to. I mean, you do, you do pick them, don't you? So, you? so you finish, you finish what will be regarded as the great McLaren era for me. And now you go to Aston Martin to do the Valkyrie. Yeah, it's, um, you know, I, I will have been quoted a million times uh, saying that I would never leave McLaren. Why would I? You know, what? Why on earth would you? In my job that I, that I had there it was a fantastic position, great responsibility, fantastic projects. You know, continuing on into the future. But it was quite an unusual call that I had, asking for advice on, um, you know, uh, from someone working on that project, the Valkyrie project, to find a. a, a a development driver to help them develop the thing um and um so someone that knows about very fast cars that have active suspension mm. a measure of hybridity i mean it's quite when you draw the venn diagram there's not many of you well, out I, there are there i couldn't think of anyone <laughs> i couldn't think of anyone that was going to fit the bill i just so there we are i just couldn't think of anyone to suggest so anyway one thing led to another i went and had a chat with adrian newey and he, come on that must have been exciting it was really exciting it was really cool and if you think my i started my mclaren journey 20 years earlier with gordon murray uh, and he had just done his road car project i didn't work on the road car just the racing cars um but then fast forward another 20 years or you know and then here i am with adrian newey um at red bull racing in his office um and you know he was showing me parts of the car showing me drawings showing me components and i just thought wow this you know I'd, I'd not even really registered it you know when you're working for you know when you're when you've got a team everyone else is rubbish right when you when you're like died in the world a supporter of one football team everyone else is rubbish i'd worked at mclaren for so long i didn't i didn't have a moment for anybody else or any other project so you know i'm not a guy to race a car and be constantly looking in my mirrors um although if you'd seen me in barcelona last weekend you might disagree. I, say, I, I normally am <laughs> um uh, so I wasn't 
up to speed with what this car was really all about. So Adrian showed me some stuff that I just found so compelling. Speaking to him about his vision for it um, warranted a further a follow-up. So um, I went to see Andy Palmer. Andy is a, um, a, a great guy that had a great vision for the future and the, of the company, of what Aston Martin needed to be. You know, very bold plans, clearly, you know, and it's re re reminiscent of sitting there with Ron and his unbelievable plan for the future of McLaren. Um, so I had a bit of confidence, I suppose, of having been there before, um, but this just compelling need to be part of that project. I mean, again, I mulled over it for quite a while, um, but it was, uh, I think it was, ultimately it was my dad that just said, you know what, you'd just regret that forever if you don't, work on that program and he's right you know it's not about it wasn't about anything other than that you know if you if you in 10 years time look back and you haven't taken the opportunity to be the come on all right tiff <laughs> calm down <laughs> yeah if, if, if in 10 years time you know you look back and you haven't taken the chance to be the test driver that developed and tuned and set up and calibrated all of the features that a driver is going to experience when he drives that car and i haven't designed it don't get me wrong i haven't done the engine uh you know the concept existed well before i walked into the door there but you know i'm being looked at to to pull it all together and tune the whole thing together and it's a immensely more complex car than has ever been seen before on the road um you know if someone else had been set it just would be awful i couldn't live with myself so but i've taken it on it's a massive challenge but it's going to be great. When do the pencils get put down? Well, if, as you've seen in a lot of car projects, actually, with a lot of projects, you don't have to put your pencil down so much because you you have to do do things in stages with car programs. You have to finalise different things at different times. So, you know, there will be a, a, a point in time where a customer needs a car. He's paid for it. He wants his car. There's also a point in time where you you know, coming back closer to closer to now, there's a point in time where you have to decide all of your hardware. You have to decide this is the design, these are the nuts and bolts, this is the the spring, this is the wheel, this is the you know, the engine specification. But that now these cars are so complicated that you, you freeze all of that quite early and then you have this whole world of tuning and calibrating the control systems that are going to control the active suspension active aerodynamics the damping so all of the stuff that we played around with with mclaren times a few because of the added layers of complexity with a fully active suspension car um i could even you know you could even see different specs of this car coming out over the years really um it's going to be amazing straight away but it's something is that, it unlike anything that's been seen before totally 100 percent. fantastic yeah. So even if you look at a wishbone, or you look at an upright, look at a brake um, cooling duct, um, you know, you've never seen anything like it on any other road car. So that, they were the things that made me realise what, what the thinking was behind this project. So there's no carryover, nothing at all, not a door handle or a switch. Um, there's an extra, extra degree of uh, complexity driven into the suspension system so that you know you mentioned very nicely earlier on about the p1 being really great to drive slowly this car will be great to drive slowly it, it, w it won't be like a racing car on the road it will be like a great road car on the road and you know i've got a love for old racing cars i love old 60s lotus cars the super lightweight touch you have to the pedals and the steering 
that's a character I really believe is a DNA of a British sports car. And you can make things feel light, even if they're not as light as a 600 kilo, 400 kilo Lotus racing car. But you, you can have that as an idea that you want to inject into everything. So you want the responsiveness and the light touch of the steering, the pedals, the control, you know, the, the agility, uh, nimbleness of the car at low speed, rather than it just being a dead, bogged down, kind of numb thing, um, which sometimes has to be driven into a car for its high speed stability, for yeah. instance. Well, we've got tunes we can play un- endlessly, really, with the suspension stiffnesses. We can move balance of spring stiffness and roll stiffness and damping around the car quicker than you can blink an eye. You know, you won't be able to feel any of it. Um, and again, with the McLarens, I think you'd be surprised how complex the control systems are on the suspension, but they just don't feel it. No, they don't. And I suppose that the, the, the McLaren journey is probably charted by how analogue you made digital feel by the end. And that's the challenge. That's the, for me, that's what it's all about. You're taking the most high-tech thing, just, but you're just making it feel so basic. and mm. just It just does what you want it to do. You don't know why or how. You shouldn't even be aware of anything happening underneath you. It should just do it. You should look at a corner and you should be on the apex. You should get on the throttle and you're all of a sudden on the exit. You know, you should be doing 200 miles an hour on a challenging bit of road. But of course, it's arrow straight. You know, you hit the brakes as hard as you can. And of course, it's got braking stability. It's not weaving around all over the road. And they're the things that, you know, we are now blessed with all of this technology and you can abuse it. As some, there are cars out there that feel very high tech. You can feel the the rear steer out of sync with this e-pass steering which isn't really in tune with the way the suspensions were you know and, and the tires aren't really tuned to match what the chassis and suspensions doing so you can actually make a basic um a, a very basic car feel kind of disjointed so the challenge is making something so yeah. complex feel completely as one and, and as, a, as a datum point i think i can see for you it must have been compelling because you've got there, there probably will only be three or four hypercars or vehicles that represent the absolute apex of speed and technology in their era that will be remembered in 50 years time and i think 250 gto i think maybe f40 um and i think then fast forward probably you know things like uh f1 you know that, that, that's when you get two then you get sort of individuals involved and, and car companies and you're looking at, at anything that's gordon murray and mclaren that's a datum point isn't it and i think this is the next one isn't it I think the Valkyrie, but when the Valkyrie is Adrian Newey's car, we've been waiting for it, yeah. haven't we, for 20 years. What would happen if he was let loose? Absolutely. And it is what that's what people are buying into. You know, it's, um, it's a dream, you know, it's, a, it's, a, it's the idea of it. You know, are people really going to drive this thing? You know, there are some amazing owners of these cars that yeah. will drive this, that could drive this thing unbelievably quickly. I think it also it'll sweep out a load of the bullshit because there's a whole, between the P1... And now there's a sea of bullshit, bullshit cars that I've not been interested in. And I'm not going to mention all their names because they, they already hate me and the people that make them and own them, what have you. But, but I'm just not interested in them at all. And I, don't, I suppose I don't quite count the Bugattis in that, in that because there's some amazing engineering that goes into those cars and they have a place. But the, I'm not, I'm not going to mention names, but there's a whole load of stuff in there that doesn't interest me. They didn't further the game. They didn't take technology and be brave with it. They made style statements. They made ludicrous noise. They 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 added complication when it wasn't necessary. And it wasn't in the name of the driving experience all too often. It was in the name of being seen. 
So I just, I, for me, that's the bullshit era. And there's, there's, there's been so much of it. And I, I like to think the Valkyrie's going to come along and just go, this is what you've been waiting for. This is the thing that moves the game on. Well, it will. It given, will. given its um, radical design, how is it homologated for most markets? Yeah, yeah. They're being sold all over the world. Yeah. Absolutely. For, for road use. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's a proper, it's just a, it's a road, it's a road car. Yeah. You know, it's a basic road car. You know, we're working with some of the suppliers that I've worked with on other car projects because they're road car part suppliers. You know, it's going to have a ABS, it'll have an e- full ESP system. You know, it will have all but of the radio. Stuff. No, you don't want to listen to a radio. Okay, that, fair now, so we've all we've talked about really is is very very high. Why would you listen? You, what we so you could listen to your own podcast? Yeah, while well, you're yeah, I'm, I'm, that, I'm that much of a narcissist. I have to listen. I'm a sociopath. Stand, love the sound of my own voice. Um, the y- your story is one of high performance of in, of incredible road cars, calibrating and finishing things like P1, all these McLarens that are so fast they you know they do bend your cheeks. But on the road. What have you driven for the last three years? What's your daily drive? And this is the point at which the audience can gasp. Go. Well, it's a Land Rover Defender 90, of course. What and, else would and, it be? And, and these are evangelical. So, and so I've raced in Blancpain in Garage 59 really happily for a couple of years with, with this man and with a guy called Alex West. Hello, Alex. You might listen to this. And, and we spend most of our time laughing. But one thing that myself and, and Alex just laugh about consistently is that the dude that develops all the fast cars drives a Defender 90. It's a bit like finding out that, I don't know, My- Michael Rue Jr. eats McDonald's, isn't it? I mean, it's, it, it's incredible. <laughs> Listen, I've got an Italian sports car when I'm feeling racy as well. The Fiat 500. Yes, yeah. Yeah. exactly. Yeah. And he's got a Mercedes 190 as well. Which when I want to cruise. Yeah. Yeah. So what else? You know, I've got racing cars. I, so, I, so for me, my whole professional life is all about the driving experience okay i work in the car industry and motor racing um and you know i listen to your podcast you've you've interviewed and talked with loads of people from different all got a different angle on the car world there are some people that scream and shout about it tiff you've got people that make a fortune selling the stuff david clark you've got um, (laughs) you know you know endless people who've got a different angle and mine is really simple i've kept it simple it's about the drive it's about the driving experience so why do you love the defender because i've been for a couple of journeys with you in it and you love driving it you're you you seem i think it's a very clever strategy i'll tell you what i think you enjoy from it you tell me first It's back to basics. Back, it keeps me completely out of trouble. Uh, I can just drive from A to B. I live in the sticks. In the winter, it's snowy. I've got no issues. I can get anywhere on any given day, whatever the weather. Um, it's the antidote almost to my daily day job. You know, it's completely the opposite. It's like a holiday. Um, it's not everyone's cup of tea. I know that. I think it's a really cool, iconic British car, and I'll keep it forever. You know, I will keep that car forever. Um, and I'm quite into iconic cars you know for me the ultimate city car is the fiat 500 that's why i bought that you know um the ultimate british historic rate classic racing car would be a 1960s lotus i've i raced them i love those things um you know what's the brutal motorsport example can-am car well i I love those sort of things so you can pick something that is you know a, a real strength or a real point about lots of cars you know um and uh, i just love i just love the drive i love going around the world driving different things drawing different experiences from each of those things so when i've driven formula one racing cars 
I draw a lot out of that experience. So a lot of driving Lewis's 2008 Formula One World Championship winning car, McLaren. A lot of that is really interesting experience. The, the steering wheel profile is in all of the McLarens, by the way. The actual ellip elliptical shape of that wheel is in every McLaren road car because of the, it's the ideal hand grip. Why would you have anything different? Yeah. Why would you? You know, um, but that's a great example of the that was the fastest racing car on the planet that year but it's one of the easiest cars i've ever driven on a race circuit you know and that's the whole myth of um a, a lot of people talk to me about downforce with my current project you know at what point does it start working well as, as soon as you roll the car more than a kilometer an hour it's you know it, it really you know the, the key to a great downforce package is that it's working from such a low speed all the way up through to vmax but with whatever your angle you want to put into it whatever pitch is going into it and i think that car i mean it was bristling with little aero pieces um but i mean that that, that must have been one of its strengths it's aero package and aero platform where you could do anything you could probably drive it like a rally car and it would still be pinned um, so, you know, I like, you know, you just have a look at the different things I drive, rally cars, racing cars, single seaters, road cars, old and new. I love to learn things that each car gives you and then try to inject it in a, in a certain way in, into the next one. And what do you think of the new Defender? Uh, I, do you know what? I haven't seen a picture of it because I don't really, no offence, follow the motoring media that much. <laughs> I've he, heard doesn't, he doesn't either. He'll say, have you driven one of those yet? I'll go, yeah, it was on the TV last week. <laughs> um, but it'd be interesting to see if it's the same sort of thing or if it's like a discovery with a different body on it. I don't I think know. It's, a, it's a cheaper discovery as opposed to a, a, you know, the sort of separate chassis thing probably isn't isn't saleable these days in, in European yeah. in European markets. I mean, you can get a bit sniffy about that kind of thing, and I think not everyone could own a Land Rover Defender 90. You know, it's not everyone could live with that. You're about as big as you can get to fit in one. Exactly. You know, they're, they're not really, you know, they're, they're not really... How many miles have you done now? About 60,000. Amazing. So well, your yeah. setup skills have certainly helped me massively, because when I used to race um, four or five years ago, I'd get quite heavily involved in the setup of the car, something I enjoyed doing, have an input... But after the first couple of races I did with, with Goodwin here, I remember thinking, he knows a bit about this, this boy does. And furthermore, when he says he likes it and it's good, I tend to like it and it's good. And ever since then, it's been a really, I mean, it's been a really happy couple of years racing we've done with Alex in Blancpain with Garage 59, which is one of uh, Chris's businesses. Um, and it, it's, it just worked because Chris would sort the thing out on a Friday and just say, I think this is the right right thing to do. Because too many cooks, when there's multiple driver racing, really does spoil the, the, the brew, doesn't it? It's, it's an absolute nightmare. So Chris sorts it out. Alex and I drive it. And um, and we're very, very happy doing that. So I'd like to thank you for the setup skills. I benefit in that way. He always makes the racing car better to drive. It's um, And it is a skill. And what's really interesting is watching him work with the engineers. Because all too often, it's a bit like going to a, a really good chiropractor. You know, you, you walk in and say, I've got a problem with my left toe. And they start playing with your right earlobe. And you think, well, how on? And they'll tell you there's a trace. There's a nerve that goes all the way up through. <laughs> and it's the same with the racing car. I'll come in and go. And they'll, they'll say to me, what was it like? And I'll say, oh, just, I've, got some, I've got some instability on entry. I'm rolling the car in. And I'm, in my head, I'm saying, well, let's put some more support in the rear of the car or something. And then Chris will say, well, why don't we make a change to the left front? And I'll go, why would you do that? It's the back of the car. And sure enough... 
these changes diagonally they 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 work and it's it's really interesting to watch that the methodology of setup it, it's it's complicated and i fear it's a dying art because as we move into the era of electricity maybe people won't care about this stuff so much i don't know but but it it's it's fascinating to watch and it does always result in a better car and it's it's made me it has actually informed the way i think about road cars as well the more time i'm exposed to good race car setup merchants and engineers the more i i realize how basic some road cars are and how flawed they are and how easy it would be to fix them and make them better well so, so and there are some great road cars out there and you think how on earth did that happen uh, probably by accident actually <laughs> <laughs> But um, yes, it, it's not every. It's not something that every road car brand prioritises at all, by any stretch. Even performance cars, you know, there's you know. Look some. what they spend on a damper. They spend all this money on flan- fancy stuff inside. You know, you five grand for the leather on the steering wheel, but you'll find out the damper actually probably was about a hundred quid. Yeah, and then you just all you have to do is just change the valve inside that. So it's not even a hundred quid you're going to change. Get the right setup in there, and you transform the steering and the feel of the car. It, it, but yeah, it's 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 not something that everyone wants to invest in. Um, and even in motor racing, you know, look, uh, I used to be paid to race cars. That used to be what I did a long, long time ago. Um, I'm not the best and fastest racing driver in the world now by any stretch. It was a long time ago. If Ron hadn't offered you that well, job, though, hey, you maybe, could have been you could have been very quick. Who knew? <laughs> um, but you look at some amazing racing drivers and we see plenty in the Blanc Pan series in the world of GT racing but I've worked with some amazing drivers I've you know uh, managed drivers that have got into Formula 1 and spent a lot of time in that world with just seeing how amazing the guys even at the back of the grid in Formula 1 are in their skills Um, but really it's almost never and very just extremely rare to find a fantastic racing driver that really knows how to set a car up their reliance on fantastic engineers and fantastic engineering tools, data acquisition tools, uh, simulation tools is is got increasingly. Um, it's just moved the picture from when I grew my career. It's, it's a completely different world. Do you now need a, a great test driver? Well, arguably, not necessarily. Uh, if it's just purely performance you're looking for, but when you're looking for that little bit of feel that's going to give you a smile and a bit of joy and allow you to skid a car you know that otherwise might spit you off the road it's 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 that stuff you can't measure that that i think uh, you know is is very rare that people have learned that have you enjoyed blanc pan so that so before before we sign this off a few years ago he uh he, he phoned me and said um what about doing some racing next year? And I've been doing, I've been racing a Bentley in Blancpain, and it'd been really good fun. I never thought I'd end up racing a GT3 car. I always thought it was a bit too grown up, but I, I did enjoy driving this Bentley with Team Parker, and I'm Stuart and the boys love them to bits. And but Gilpin said, what, "What do you reckon?" He goes, "Because I'm currently a silver, and the way that the FIA um, gradings go, if you want to be in an AM car, all of you have got to be bronze drivers." Um, and I said, "But you're a silver." He said, "Ah, but when you turn 50." you come down a grade. So he, you get demoted by age, not on ability, as a, as a kind of pat on the back. So as a very f- sprightly late 49-year-old, he phoned me and said, I'm going to be bronze next year. I know this guy called Alex, and he's quick, and he's, and he, he's quite keen to do this. What, what do you reckon? So we all went and did, um, we've done 
we just finished three years of it, haven't we? Um, of doing of doing Blanc Pan, two years in a McLaren, and this year in the new rather wonderful Aston Martin V8 Vantage GT3. And it has been immense fun. I've learned loads, but also most importantly, spent most of the weekends laughing my ass off because you can't turn up to these things unless you're laughing and having fun. But for you, you've come back as an am. You seem very comfortable with it. I mean, I've never. I, I, I suspect it's the most relaxed, fun racing you've done, isn't it? Yeah. Look, me and motor racing. As I said at the start, I'm not a racing driver. I'm a test driver. I've been a test driver, professional test driver for, for most of my career. Um, I also happen to go racing because I love it. Um, you know, wind the clock back to the mid uh, so 2010 um, at McLaren. Uh, I was asked by McLaren to find a way to help McLaren go GT racing again. So along with my current partner in Garage 59, Andrew Cacoldi, we started McLaren GT business and we were man- designing, developing and manufacturing GT racing cars in GT3, GT4. I mean, that was an up, a rocky road to start with, as was the road car side of the business. But we got there. We won a huge number of championships. Our own internal race team, Garage 59, won the Blancpain Championship in 2016. But, you know, we supplied cars around the world um, that won championships all over the world in every continent. And, you know, even Seb Loeb chose to buy a couple of, you know, for no discount. And he raced that with success. And, and that was a real was involved very heavily in the business. I drove the cars a little bit, tested them, raced them a little bit, but I was busy on the development side. But it was very much business, 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 and there was a lot of pressure attached to that. Um, now, we chose uh, uh, to switch out. Well, we, we stopped building those cars. Um, I switched my career over to Aston Martin, and it kind of presented an opportunity to look at racing slightly differently. Um, and at the same time, I was also reaching the big 5.0, and actually, initially what had been in my mind was do you know what I'm 50 but I am quite sprightly and I am quite fit and young and I'll just do a marathon to show everyone that I'm still young and fit and and as it, as I thought those thoughts I both of my knees basically disagreed with me and said no you don't <laughs> so I had to go and have double knee surgery to to scrape out the cartilage of my knees and the, the fantastic surgeon um um in London sorted my knees out Andrew Davies was brilliant if you've got knee trouble he's the guy no one else Um, amazing because I'll tell you why I went in there on the Thursday had both knees scraped out keyhole surgery and both he said just take a couple of weeks off but do not do a marathon when you start up get up and running and you know in the future do anything you want to do just don't ever do a marathon well I said okay all right okay that's a shame so that was on a Thursday. On Monday, I was driving around here at Silverstone in a Formula One car. Uh, and I thought, do you know what? I love driving racing cars. Why don't I just do racing then? So hence the decategorizing of my license, thinking about a way to go motor racing that would be fun. And to be honest, it's been brilliant. I've enjoyed racing. I am comfortable about it. It's not my job. Um, but as it turns out, you know, even since Ron told me to give up racing, I won the European Le Mans series and I won Brit- in British GT and all sorts of stuff happens by accident. The happy coincidence of reaching 50, having bad knees and having to go motor racing again meant we raced together, had immense fun. Alex has joined us and it's been terrific. I think it's been a journey for him, for a guy that, you know, uh, is a fantastic road car collector, had done a little bit of Ferrari challenge. He's now raced around the world. He, he, you know, even this year he won a race on the Nordschleife with Martin Brundle. Um, he's raced with us jokers all over the planet and um, won a lot of trophies. 
developed hugely as a driver and uh, and had a good time and again it's all about the experience not about the numbers and the the results it's it's about the fun you have behind the wheel one of my things i do on a race weekend everyone has their time killing strategies one of mine is i like quick crosswords i don't like cryptics i like quick ones so just you know just gives you a clue and you have to think of the word um and um Goodwin sometimes gets hold of my crossword book. I'm aware of it. So what he does is he just writes in rude words. Oh. So if, I, if I'm halfway through a crossword, I'm battling with it. I'll just look at it and I'll say, well, I haven't done five across. I don't remember seven across being bumhole. <laughs> <laughs> and I'll, then I'll find him and go, Goodwin, you can have my crossword book again. And he'll go, and he'll be, no, it wasn't me, it wasn't me. And I just, so they, I, I've honestly, it's been really good fun. I've learned lots because it's, you know, so much of, of, a, of a good race weekend is what happens outside the car. And if you get it right, when you execute, you should have done it all before. The, the, the actual race is the easy bit. You just get in the car. And there's some luck involved in the Blanc Pan because it's so fraught. But all the hard work happens before. And you're almost, as a driver, you're almost relaxing, thinking we've done the job before the race starts. If you've got that done, you just know it's going to work for you. You know, we had a we had a, we had had a shocker in Barcelona. We were just really struggling to get the car to work there. doesn't really suit the Aston Martin. And in, in qualifying, we're sort of making quite big changes to the car across the pro car and the am car. And you know then, if you're making changes that late in the day, you're struggling a bit. But overall, this year has been, and, the, and last year as well, just mega fun. And uh, I've just laughed the whole time. And if you're laughing, you're doing well, I think. If you're laughing, you're probably going to go and win. I mean, we, we, we run her up two years. We should have won it last year, definitely. This year, well, we probably had a good chance of winning it this year. Spa's our nemesis, though, isn't it? Uh, it's a, a brutal race. You know, that's why it's worth doing. That's that's really the thing about the, the, the racing that, that we've done in this last couple of years is that, you know, there's a huge number of pretend championships you can do and, and you can make yourself feel great about your racing by going pot hunting in little championships where there isn't really much going on. But, you know, we had 70 cars in Spa 24 hours. There are more professional racing drivers in that championship than in any other on the planet. There are more manufacturers pumping money into it than any other currently, I think, on the on the planet right now. Uh, all the brands that we rate, the com- we compete against in the road car market is very much, you know, my world that I live in because actually there are a huge number of people that buy the cars I develop that are racing in that series. There are an enormous amount of people that know you and you're writing about their product. We're writing about them as people, you know, and um, yes, yeah, so it's a cool world. I mean, if it's something that you've never been to see and you like fast cars, you've got to go to one of those races. It's mega. Absolutely yeah. mega. So I think um, we could go on for hours, and we will. And we, just to say now, he doesn't know it yet, but we'll get Chris back. When, when Valkyrie is closer to being something that people like me are allowed to drive, please let me drive it, Aston Martin, um, we'll get him back in and we'll do a full debrief on the car. It'd be great to really go through that uh, with you. I'm sure they will let us do it at some point, won't they? Well, I was thinking, you know, just, just as you were saying that talking about the sort of stuff I write in your crossword book which made me sound like a proper <laughs> retard <laughs> I've just been thinking of a clever smart way to end this little chat by saying what I really want to do at the end where the Valkyrie's finished it's a road car I wanted to take one and drive it down Exhibition Road in South Ken and park it outside Imperial College and just say I didn't really need a degree from you guys <laughs> I managed to sort it out so maybe we'll do the uh, the next chat there. I thought you were going to admit what you called uh, Ron behind closed doors. <laughs> no, 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 no. Next what question. Your, what, is your, what, is, what is your favourite fast food in terms of burgers? 
My body is a temple. Look at me. And who is the clown that once advertised those? Was it Ronald? Yeah, the only clown around here is you, Harris. <laughs> Look, it's been an absolute pleasure. And uh, I think that'd be fantastic. Some, some stuff in there, some nuggets about all those fast cars that people never knew and the stories behind what makes them great. So that's the end of another Collecting Cars podcast. That was um, great fun here at Silverstone in the wet at the RMA track day with Edward Lovett. I'm not going to say his tag again. I've said it twice. And to my pal Chris Goodwin. Uh, we're going to go home now and uh, I hope you enjoy that podcast and there'll be another one soon. Bye-bye. Thank you, Chris. Bye-bye. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.